This morning we are in Ephesians chapter 1, and we are continuing on a brief series this summer just on some of God's priorities in our praying. And I think sometimes it, it really does shake up and change our prayer life as we think through the way the Scripture, in the New Testament in particular, uh, prays, and the kind of things that we see prayed for in the Scripture, and it should shape and guide and form our prayer lives. And so we spent a couple of weeks in the Lord's Prayer. You probably saw the slide if you missed some weeks. There are, all the sermons are online. All my notes are online. You can go and watch and listen and catch up. But we've done a couple of weeks in the Lord's Prayer uh, where Jesus says, pray like this, and, and, and gives us a, a shape and a form of the kind of things that should uh, be in our longing prayers his kingdom coming and his will being done. This morning we're in Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul prays. Next week we'll be in Ephesians chapter 3 where he prays again. And, uh, and in the course of his letter writing to the church, uh, both teaching them and enlightening them in the first three chapters, there's a lot of teaching and doctrine. And in the last three chapters, there's a lot of uh, calling the church to follow Christ and to be like him. And, uh, and in the midst of these things, just as it should be in the midst of all of our teaching in, in all those different veins, there should be praying, right? Unless the Lord builds His house, we who labor do it in vain, that we should abide in Christ. And only by abiding in Christ, and I believe a great part of the way that we do that is in prayer, being with Him, knowing Him, loving Him, that we will bear much fruit. And so in the midst of it, it's great to see Paul just break into prayer in his letter, and I'm praying these things for you. I'm praying it all the time for you. As I try to teach you these things, that these things would come home to your hearts. And that's really what the prayer is about, that the things I'm teaching you would come home to your hearts in a profound and life-changing way. I don't know that we pray these kind of things. We're talking about the eyes of our heart this morning, Ephesians 1. I'm going to start in verse 15 and go through verse 23. Here then... The Word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That, and you'll notice from verse 15 down to the end of verse 21 or 22, it's all one sentence. So I remember you, and, and so I don't stop praying for you. That, and here it is what I'm praying, that God the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that He may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Praying you would get this. And He put all things under His feet and He gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. 
We thank you for the prayers that are in here. The things that Paul prayed for your people. Father, we would pray them for ourselves and for your people. We pray that you would teach us your priorities in prayer. The things that are important. Core things for our spiritual lives and growth. That that you would capture our imaginations and shape our praying hearts. To pray these things in like this. We would learn to pray. Teach us to pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. We all have seasons of spiritual dryness. I know I do. Times when you feel like maybe God or even spiritual things and spiritual truths that once seemed so real and true and close just seem farther away. You wonder if you're being heard or you wonder the, you know, these things. Sometimes you start the truth of all the things we believe just feel far away, sometimes emptier than they normally do. We're just, we know the truth in a lot of these moments. It's not that we've forgotten the truth and we don't know who God is. It's, we're not feeling it. I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there many, many a time. More times than I care to admit. Seasons of the wilderness. Wandering, perhaps. And God often has good reasons for us to be in the wilderness. There are a lot of good reasons Uh, Or sometimes we do not have a sense of his presence. Sometimes he's teaching us to hunger and to thirst for his presence by giving you a taste of his absence. There are a lot of things that God does in those moments, but they're not to be moments that are unresponsive in our hearts. And I believe that as we sometimes go through those moments, and I know the answer is sometimes people, what do I do if I feel, you know, I'm in the wilderness or I don't feel like, you know, God is close by or, I, you know, it all seems so distant at this moment. What should I do? And, you know, sometimes hard to hear the answers. We'll pray about it. You know, the, the, the trite end, you know. But there's so much, there is truth in it. And I understand there are other things that you can and should do, like be among God's people. Um, and when your faith is weak, theirs is strong. When your voice is not as raised as high to listen to the people around. There are so many ways that God will meet us in those moments. But, but what part of the answer is to pray. And this, is, this is what Paul is doing. He's praying for the Ephesians church. It's curious to me, he gives different prayers at different times. But he must know some things about the life of the Ephesian church that he prays these specific things for them. And I think there are a good prayer for us. He says in verse 15, for this reason... I uh, have heard about your faith for this reason. He goes on to as to why he prays. And for this reason, points us back a little bit. The context of his praying, if you read verses of 1 to 14, the context of this prayer is God's sovereign and eternal plan. Who God is and what he is doing and how the Ephesian church, how the people gathered there have responded to what God is doing. In verse 4, he talks about having chosen them before the foundations of the earth. And in verse 13, it talks about then how the Ephesians, these folks who have been known and loved and chosen by God in eternity, have come to know him in time. And in verse 13, it talks about how you heard and how you believed and how you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who in verse 14 is a guarantee, a certainty of the eternal future that he gives us. And he says, and for this reason... 
that I've seen you, that you've heard it and responded to it, and, and the work of the Spirit is evident in your lives for this reason. And he gives one as he goes on. I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love, a sure mark of followers of Jesus, your love for all the saints. Because I've heard these truths, I pray for you regularly, gratefully. I pray for you as God's people. I pray in an ongoing way for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what this is a prayer for. It's a prayer for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people. And I can tell you now that there is very little in the Christian life that you can do or accomplish, very little growth that you can see, very little service that you can give, apart from the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the fountain the living fountain from which it all flows. So Paul is praying essentially that the Holy Spirit would make God and His kingdom and His glory and His power real to His people. That's what the prayer is, and we're going to walk into it. But that's what he's doing. He is praying that these things would be known in the deepest reaches of your heart and soul, that they would be real and living for you to directly impress them on the inner person, on our hearts and on our minds, the truth and the certainty of these spiritual things, exactly what we're missing in those times of dryness and wilderness. In verse 17, he prays, he says, and I do not cease giving thanks for you and remember you in my prayers that, that God our Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. When he says wisdom, you know that word, the skill of living, the skill that he would give you a real application of all the things you believe, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And the word there is apocalypsis. The word apocalypse, which is the word, which is the word that means the Greek word for revelation. It's the name of the last book in the Bible, the, the apocalypse, the, revel, the book of revelation. And so he prays that God would give his people a spirit of wisdom and an apocalypsis, a revelation of the knowledge of him. Sometimes we would use in this context, as soon as I start talking about revelation to immediate, a direct revelation to the hearts and minds of God's people, which is what he's talking about. We switch and we use often the word illumination, which, which is a, it saves us from the idea that he's giving any particularly new content. In other words, his revelation is complete. There's no new content that he's given to you. He's not telling you something new that you won't find here. But what he does is he, this spirit of revelation that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened is that the truth that is embodied here would be made clear and true and sensible to your soul. That he would make it real to you. So not a new revelation, but an illumining of the truth that he gives us in his word. The spirit and the word always work together. That what the spirit wants to know, he enlightens and brings alive the word of his truth. And so he prays for that spirit of wisdom in Revelation in 18, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That's a great image. I like that. That the light would go on. Right? The eyes of your heart. 
would be, and it is, it's just the word for light, just a basic word, and it would be that the light basically would come on. The, your, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. It's as if you were in darkness. What if it was your eye, the eyes of your heart weren't enlightened? Close them. There it is. Okay, now he wants the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. Open them up so that you can see. Like what happens when your eyes of your heart are not, when your physical eyes are not enlightened, when we're in the dark. Imagine you're in a dark room. Somebody may describe the contents of the room to you. You know, they may try to give you a sense of the artwork on the wall and this and that, and you might try to imagine it in your head and wander about that room, navigate the room in the darkness, but it's a whole other thing if you turn the light on. Oh, I see it. Right? And this is what he's saying. The light would go on in your heart. They may have described God to you, the knowledge of him, a head, a head knowledge where you try to imagine, and there's a certain amount that's been described to you or whatever. And he says, but I, I pray that it wouldn't be just you know, a secondhand knowledge that's been described to you by other te- people, experience that other people have described to you of what it is to, to know him and the truth of his word and to be in relationship with him. I pray the light would go on and you would see it for yourself. Right? Now let's use some of the other senses. He's using that the light would go on. You know, it's like the taste of honey. If, I, if you'd never had honey before, and I tried to describe it to you. Nothing sweet, and I try to describe it. It would be one thing to have a description. It would be another to have a drop of honey on your tongue. You'd be like, oh, yeah, now I know what you're talking about. You know, or, or I try to describe, say, you've never heard music before, and I try to describe to you what music sounds like. Well, it's, it sounds, and they, you know, I could describe to you what music sounds like. I could describe to you, you know, that's one thing. And so many, for us, our Christian life is like that. It's all stuff that's been described to us that we read about or we hear about or whatever, but it's another thing to hear the music. Oh, to see it, to taste it, to hear it for yourself, to know its beauty and its power for yourself. That's what Paul is praying for God's people. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon called A Divine and Supernatural Light, Immediately, when you hear immediate in these old guys, it doesn't mean like, you know, really quick. It means without mediation, like um, without something in between. Like, I got to have a mediator. Somebody stands between you and me. You know, without a mediator, without something in between. So immediately means directly. A divine and supernatural light directly imparted to the soul by the Spirit of God to be shown both scriptural and rational. That's the name of his sermon. I was thinking about expanding the names of my sermon to capture more of what I'm trying to tell you, you know, but it just doesn't fit in the bulletin, and so I go short. But, but here it is, 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 this, is what he's, this is what he is talking about. There is a divine and supernatural light that goes on and directly can impart to the soul by the Spirit of God the truth, all of it. Biblical truth. In the sermon he says, He that is spiritually enlightened truly apprehends and sees it. Has a sense of it. To be sensible is the senses. To hear, to taste, to, to see, you know, the touch. You know, so the sense. Sensible means, you know, so that we would have a sense of it does not merely rationally believe that God is glorious. You told me all about it. You've described it to me. It sounds fascinating, and I have an idea of it, and I even believe it. But that's different to have a sense of the gloriousness of God revealed to my soul. 
where I am driven to my knees and humbled under a sense of who God is, that he is revealed to me. There's not only a rational belief that God is holy, but that holiness is a good thing, but there is a sense of the loveliness of God's holiness imparted to the soul. This inner illumination of the truth, we all know that God is glorious. I could describe to you the glories of it, the language that the Bible tries to borrow all through from beginning to the end to describe the glory of the beauty of God's holiness and who he is in all of his power. You've heard about it. What does Job say at the end of Job when God in the pages and pages of a revelation of himself to Job? And one of the things he says is, I repent in dust and ashes. I had heard about you with the hearing of the ear, but now... Now I've seen. Now I know. Now I get it. <laughs> and to his knees he falls. And we'll never be on our knees till we get it. And so he explains this, you know, and this whole thing, this, this revelation to the soul, it explains our first conversion. The light comes on. I don't know about for you, it's my experience. There was, there was my life, and then there was a day when the light went on. Some of you, that's like a dim. We've talked to me. Some of you, that's like a dimmer switch. You grew up in it, and you know slowly, but you reach the day where you say, "I've never known a day when when the light's not really been on," you know. But the light is on for you. And some of us, it was more. There was a day when it wasn't on, and in that conversion experience, people hear about Jesus, and we don't get it. And we don't get it. I don't, you know. I hear you saying He's the Lord. He's the Son of God. He's, you know, I hear what you're saying, but until the light goes on. The day when I heard about Christ and I said, He is, He is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. He is the one who bore my sin on the cross. I see Him. I, this is, I know that I know. The light goes on. We see Jesus for who He is. And love Him and follow Him and believe in Him. And until that light goes on, we won't. That's why in John 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, and for me that means the light goes on. To be born again, to have spiritual life. You know, once I was blind, but now I see that spiritual light in life. Until a man is born again, he can't see. He can't see the kingdom, much less want it or enter it. But when a man is born again and his eyes are opened, to see this work of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing work, a work that we need, the Spirit of God to make the truth of God real and true to our souls so that we live according to it, that we love it, that we serve Him in it. And Paul's teaching us to pray, and I think by praying it for the church and then giving it to in the Scripture, he's teaching us to pray that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. To know and to know him. And that's where he goes, right? In some very specific things that he wants us to know. To have eyes to see. To be illumined to see. The first thing is God Himself, right? The end of verse 17. Spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. To know Him. I want God to open the eyes of your heart so that you will know him. And here we move from that speculative knowledge, from that head knowledge, from the things I got lined up in my head and check off. Yeah, believe that, believe that, believe that. To I know him. 
I know Abraham Lincoln. I got the facts lined up. Something about Illinois being born in Illinois, you know, then he failed a bunch of things. You know, I can check it off. There's a sentence which I know Abraham Lincoln. It's another thing if I had dinner with him and got to be his friend. You know, there's a, there's a difference between that speculative knowledge, a historical knowledge, a book knowledge, and knowing you. And the scripture calls us to know him. And so he prays that we would know God. Experience his reality in our souls. Some people, as soon as I use the word experience, and there are some traditions, you're like, you know, experience. Some traditions are nothing but experience. <laughs> some traditions, we have a little bit of fear of experience when I start talking about, no, you should experience God. Do you experience God? His love for you. When I say, you know, we're talking about this is the work of the Holy Spirit, and we're told, well, here are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What are the first three? Love, joy, peace. Are these things you experience? Are they experience you want to have? Yeah, they are. The first fruits of the Spirit and the soul of God's people, the first things he does is give you an experience of his love and his joy and his peace. They are things that, that are experiential, and those things, I think, are what the rest of the fruit of the Spirit flow from. I'm not going to be patient, kind, self-controlled, faithful, all the things that he calls me to do if I, had, if I don't... If I don't know him and love him in a way that, it, it's to know him and love him in a way that changes me. When I know him and when I love him, when I do know his love for me and the joy of my salvation and the joy of seeing the world as it is and the hope of eternal life and the peace that passes understanding and settles upon my soul, then everything else that he calls me to be and to do is a whole lot easier. And if I have no sense of, sense of such things, it changes us. Not new content, biblical content, but a work of the Spirit of God to make the God of the Bible real in our souls, that we might know Him and love Him. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12, it says this, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. That is the work of the Spirit of God. He is revealing things to us. Not new content at this stage of the game. But the truth of the things in the Scripture brought home to us. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, who He is, right? That we might know Him. The depths of God, He searches. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God, and He is the one revealing them to us. The sense of his holiness, the reality impressed on our hearts. I love that image, the eye of the hearts enlightened, verse 18. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that our hearts have eyes. The Greeks had a good idea of head and, and heart, the noose, the mind, and the, and the cardia, the heart. And they know, but for them, the heart was the seat, and a man can think in his heart. It included, for them, man wasn't just a thinking thing, which is a real dangerous Western idea. And in some places, it were just a feeling thing. But for him, the heart was all those things wrapped up. It's all one thing. This, and, the, and the inner person, who we are in our deepest thoughts and feelings and affections. And he says, in your heart, that your inner heart, that your heart would see. Moses prayed, show me your glory. 
Moses knew God was glorious. You know God is glorious. You've been told. You've read it. But Moses wasn't content. And Paul is not content that we would simply know that he is glorious. Moses says, show me your glory. Let me see. Let me taste. Let me to know this truth in a real and deep, like that I'll know that I know that I would have experience of you. Show me yourself. Let me know you. You prayed this prayer. It should shape our prayer life to seek such things, this revelation of God's glory to us, right? And, and I love that he says in verse 17 leading up to this, you know, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and he brings together, I think, the Lord's Prayer and Moses' prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, we're to call him to come to him as Father and to make his name glorious. But Moses, from the earliest days, wants to know his God's glory in a, in a personal, revelatory way. Richer sense. So he's asking that the Spirit of God would shine his light, the light of his glory on Moses' soul and on our souls in a new and richer and profounder, real, personal way. And that it would have impact and power. And that's what all this is really all about. Something that, something that is real has power to shape and to change and to move us. You have to see that. Stuff that is notional or things that we believe up here doesn't really change anything. I mean, you get that, right? That there are, for people who say they believe certain things, but it changes nothing. Right? Jesus had a huge problem with this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you clean the outside of the cup and the inside's full of a mess and dead men's bones and decay? Why? This, this, this unreality between what people say and show and believe and, and who, how it actually impacts their lives and shapes and changes them. And I believe that this is part of the answer to all of this. This, this work of the Holy Spirit, ongoing work to make God real to his people, it changes us. I believe this is what's trying to be captured in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where he says, we all with unveiled face. And when you talk about the veiled face, who are we talking about? Moses. What was Moses praying for? To see God's glory. Why was he wearing a veil? Because having seen God's glory, his face glowed so much like that it had such a visible impact on his person. He veiled his face to, you know, to mediate his relationship with God's people. But this with now we with unveiled faces, behold this same God of glory, right? So we with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. And when we do see, we are being transformed. And I can tell you now, we will not be transformed into that image if we don't see it and get it. Or if we just kind of believe it up here. But as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. And for me, that's what I'm trying to say too, is that this is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. It's part of our walk with him, that as we spend time with him, and as we love him, as we abide in Christ, as we seek him, as we ask and knock and seek, as we behold his glory, as we worship him and are with him, as we want to see his glory, as we want to know him, and that is a 
to hunger and thirst for that righteousness in time, that this is something over time that grows in us, develops in us, deepens in us, strengthens in us, takes more and more control then of our thought life and our living and the choices we make, but only as it is truly gripping, only as it truly owns the inner places will that happen. And so beholding his glory, we are transformed little by little, glory to glory, piece by piece, day by day, year by year, to be more like Jesus. And all this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It is that work of the Spirit of God. True sense of the presence and reality of God made known to our hearts. And bearing the fruits there of His love for us. The joy and the peace, and the patience and the kindness and the goodness. But he also prays for one more thing, and let me give you this image as he does. And when I say one more thing, I said this is all one big sentence. And as you see that he presses forward in praying, it's really he's praying that you would have a vision of Christ in his awesome, exalted glory and power. And he says, if you would see Christ like that, if that would be revealed to your hearts, and your eyes were open in the eyes of your heart to see Christ high and lifted up, like Isaiah saw God in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up on his throne, and the place shook and so forth. And he gives us a similar image, but the image now is of Christ our King and Savior, right? And he prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. Why? That you may know. But do they not already know it? They already know the facts. They already know the facts. He's not teaching them new facts. But he's praying for a work of the Spirit of God in their hearts for them to know in a different way, a deeper way. What? The hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, his immeasurable greatness of his power that is toward us who believe according to that that same power that the working of his might when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places above all rule, authority, power, and dominion above every name that can be named, not only in this age, but in every age to come, the exalted Christ in all of his glory and power. And he says, I want you to know it. Because he says, in a sense, it's toward you, right? Isn't that what he, he says in the midst of all that? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? He wants our hearts to see the hope of our calling. The calling from death to life in Christ. The calling where he pours out his spirit on his people and he begins a good work in us and he's carrying on to completion to the day of Christ, predestining to be conformed to the image of his son. This calling that he has given us that transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, that we have have exchanged kingdoms, we've been delivered from darkness and into the kingdom of his son, the calling to be his sons and to be his daughters in his kingdom being conformed to that image that one day we will see him face to face and when we do, we will be like him and we'll be utterly changed forever and for good. This calling that we have as his people to be his people, to grasp the identity and the calling that he has given us, that the power of it would be impressed on your souls. Why? Doesn't it change everything? Those things that seemed so important a minute ago, if you had that revelation, 
of Jesus and all of his resurrected power and glory toward us who believe his church, which is where he goes here in a second, and that we see then all the things that seemed so important a minute ago start to lose some of their power over us. You know what? I got bigger fish to fry. You know, I got, I got, I, there's other stuff going on that you, you know, that you don't even see or understand. And so I'm following Christ. I beat to the sound of a different drummer. You know, it changes things. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I'll simply say this. It, 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 Almost, I did a bunch of study to make sure because almost I don't believe, you know, it's one of those things that's hard to believe, that when he talks about the inheritance, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that we are the inheritance in that sense. It is the riches of his glorious inheritance that is in us, that we're his inheritance. In some ways, we, we understand this because we know that before the foundations of the world, he, is, he has chosen us to be in Christ and is creating a church that the gates of hell will not stand against as he builds it. And on that last day, the sheep and the goats are separate and his church is established. And in some ways, all of history is around he is creating a people for himself and for his own possession and that this is a key thing that he's about. And on the day that you are given to Christ as his bride, you are, in a sense, we are, in a sense, his inheritance. For me to wrap my heart around that, that you are not your own, you're bought at a price, and you're now his, and given the Father, it's what he means, I think, in John 17, 24, it's runs, the theme runs through John, I desire that they also whom you have given to me, you are given to him, you are his inheritance, you are the, that which it all has purchased, the bride of Christ, his body. I want them whom you have given to me to be with me where I am, for them to see my glory, the glory that I had before the foundations of the world. That is our destiny as his inheritance, to be with him and to see his glory and to be transformed into its likeness. First Peter, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Oh, that we would get it. You are holy unto the Lord. His inheritance, his people, his family, his body. And then he builds up these words. It's hard even to do in the English and, and is that he talks about the immeasurable greatness, the superlative greatness. And then he stacks four words for power, four different words for power and builds them up like a wave building building up to, to crash over you, that you would get the immeasurable greatness of this tsunami, that you would get the immeasurable greatness of his surpassing, exceeding power, full energy of his strength, of his might. He uses all four words, dunamis, the first one of power, and the energy of his energy, of his kratos, his strength of his might. And he uses four words to build up that you would know his power toward us. And that this picture of the exalted Christ is our Christ. He is our head. 
Right? Isn't that where he ends? And he says, he put all things under the feet of Jesus and gave him to be head over everything, all power, authority, and dominion. I don't know much about the powers and authorities beyond it. I know there are hierarchies and there are angelic powers and demonic powers, and I know there are spiritual powers. I don't know a lot about them, but one thing I know, they're all under Jesus' feet. Right? And so we, all this power, he says, has been submitted. It's all under his feet, and he gave him to be head over all things, the church, his body, his fullness. And there is a sense in which we, as he is the head and body, belong together as mine do. And in that sense, we're his fullness of what God is doing in time and eternity. And that all of this power of the exalted Christ is toward us, the church. Do you, do you not see where we need to pray to get it? To pray, to, help, to open the eyes of my heart that I can know the hope to which you have called us. To know this Christ and his power and his glory. To know that I am his. To know that I belong to him. To know what he is doing in me and in this world and where it's all going. So many ways this should, can be applied, so what? And the list goes on, if you haven't got it already, is simply to pray for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. God, show me your glory. Show me the glory of the exalted Christ in such a way that when I get to chapters 4, 5, and 6 to live all this out, that, that there is power and motivation and desire and passion to be the people of God. So we pray. He says we do not ask, have because we do not ask. Jesus says ask and it will be given. Knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you will find. And the kind of things that he tells us to hunger for and to long for and to seek and to ask and to knock is this. A priority in prayer. To shape our prayer life. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in his promises shed abroad in our hearts to grasp the truth, to know him. We need a deeper and richer understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit, don't we? Sometimes we think we can do the spiritual life and there's little reference or thought of the Holy Spirit at all when there is no Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. You know, there, there is no progress. There is no seeing, right? There is no fruit bearing. There is no growth apart from him. We need a deeper and richer understanding of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit poured out in our hearts and in our lives and a dependence upon Him and an abiding in Him and a desire for His work in me and His illuminating grace in me. We need a clear sense that He is for us and not against us. He is seated in glory and power and He is for His church and He is for His people and He has already paid the price This is the path of spiritual growth. Sometimes we think if we just try harder, if we just make our list longer of things we check off and believe and then try harder on a few other things and we miss in the middle that there is a spiritual reality to these things. There is a real impact and change that goes on in the soul of a person. Sometimes Christianity seems so transactional. Even our view of conversion. If you just pray this prayer, then you're a Christian. No, you're not. <laughs> it's not magic. And unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of heaven. 
And there are many people who check the box and pray the prayer who know not Christ. And he said it in his own day. You know, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that? Then we check the box and pray the prayer. And he'll say, I never knew you. There's a spiritual reality that must be real. And he, he prays that, that, that it would be real. That's all he prays. It's just for real Christianity. The presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people, bringing Jesus and all that is his close to us and making us and remaking us in that image as we follow and serve him in the advancing of his kingdom. The main thing this passage teaches us as you go home, so what is this? Do not be satisfied with a bare knowledge of the truth. In fact, a bare knowledge of the truth can destroy you. Paul says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I'm all for knowledge. I would still be in school if I could afford it. I'm all for learning. Don't get me wrong. But it is, it is more than, right? It is, it is this. Do not be satisfied with a bare head knowledge, but to long for and to seek after and to pray for a knowledge of God that changes everything. Show me your glory. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you that you are a God who is, who is real in power and in glory. And you have made us in your own image. And part of that image is that we have a reflection and an ability to know you and to love you and to relate to you. What a mercy, what a grace. That such an image would be impressed on our souls that we might know the living God. Oh, save us from ourselves and our satisfaction with facts, with collected knowledge, with bare theology. But may all our theology and biblical learning be a pathway to a genuine relationship with a living God who is. Show us your glory and change us glory by glory into your image. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.